Welcome back to True Crime with the Bad Girl and the Playa. My name is Benny Scala, a.k.a. the Playa. I'm the co-host of the long-running Dan and Benny in the Ring podcast, as well as a weekly participant on the 30 and Wrestling Remembered shows, all of which can be seen on the Monty and the Pharaoh YouTube channel. You know, I kind of sound like that guy from the, uh, the Simpsons. <laughs> Hi, I'm Troy McClure. You may have seen me in adult films. Such a stiff competition, hard at work, and she'll be coming around the mountain. For the reason, as always, by my partner, True Crime, the Boston Bad Girl, the siren of situate, legendary professional wrestler, Brittany Brown. Brittany, how are you doing these days? Been a while since our last episode, but I think oh, this one's yeah. going to be well worth the wait. Definitely. I am doing very well. How are you guys doing? We're here. We're live. It's Monday. We're live on a Monday. Nice. In Technicolor. Technicolor. Yeah. Well, folks, this episode that was a, this episode was a long time in the making. We're going to be talking about one of the most notorious, and I mean notorious, criminals in the history of the United States, uh, James Joseph Bulger Jr. And to be honest, I knew very little about Whitey Bulger when we started the prep for this show. But man, did I get an education! Now, Brittany, having grown up in, grown up in Boston, is uh, quite familiar with this man and his exploits. But with us today are two great friends who grew up in the Boston area, also. Uh, during Whitey's reign of terror. They're both gracious enough to join us this week. First, my fellow contestant from the 30 and a panel member from our Friday night wrestling remembered show, the president of Thursday night, Mr. Phil DeCessere. Phil, thanks for joining us. And uh, let please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. My pleasure, champ. And we have to note you are the champ. That's so. right. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, the champ. We're that title with pride, baby. The champ El champion. El champion. Indeed. You know, it's interesting. Uh, as a kid, I remember watching the movie that they would play on Channel 56 every year, usually around the time of Charles Manson's probation <laughs> hearing, you know, um, parole hearing, I should say. It was, a, it was called Helter Skelter, starring Steve Railsback. It, was, oh, uh, yeah. it, was, yeah, it came out in 1976, but they replay it every year, typically around the time that he would be up. And that's where I guess the fascination, or more, I should say, the fear of people like this, like yeah. Charles Manson came. And having uh, my late father being a police officer, my late uncle being a uh, journalist in Boston and New York, I grew up with a lot of stories, um, a lot of them crime-centered, and I listened as intently as I could as a kid. But uh, like you know, like any kid, you, you, you miss some things, and, and some things are kind of kept from you. So I really started to research, read, listen, and uh, really acclimate myself with Whitey and, and and just the whole saga that involves just more than crime, too, but it, just yeah. an amazing saga. So I'm hooked, man. I've devoured books on it. I've listened to experts speak on it. So I need to get some of this out of me, man. I get too much inside. <laughs> I hear you. We're anxious to hear it. And we're also joined by my brother from another mother, Joe Whataday Lowry. Joe is the host of What a Day in Centerville. If you haven't caught that yet, you have to. It's great. It's at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time every Wednesday night. And uh, Joe's also a fellow contestant in Death 30 and the host of Wrestling Remembered on, on Friday night. And if that ain't enough for you, Joe and I are also the co-hosts of the Line Drive Baseball Podcast. And Joe has been gracious enough to produce this episode, which I thank him humbly for. And Joe, how are you doing? And tell our listeners a bit about What a Day Joe. Yeah. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me again. I know we're uh, kind of revamping this episode, but uh, I think um, there's a lot of stories to be told about Whitey Bulger. So I'm glad we're kind of doing this again. But uh, anyways, I'm Joe Wittaday Lowry. 
I am a Bostonian all the way. Just moved to a small town, Centerville, Iowa, population 5,600. About two years in February, believe it or not. So uh, still adjusting, still missing the food back home. Everything is fried around here, even the Oreos. Um, (laughs) You know, it is what it is. But uh, craving the pizza, craving the Chinese food, that is for sure. Uh, Hopefully we'll be back soon to enjoy some of that cuisine. But uh, yeah, what a day is what a day, you know. you Benny, you put the resume out there. So we are on almost four, maybe five times a week, uh, including my show on Wednesday nights, which is basically about uh, Centerville, Iowa, small town. I promote the city. I promote uh, all its businesses and so forth. And, you know, we do a little trivia and stuff. So, I mean, people have tuned in all over the nation and people want to come to Centerville. So, um, you know, join me on Wednesdays at seven. But like Benny said, you can catch us on a multitude of platforms here on Monty and the Pharaoh's uh, YouTube channel. So, I'm very happy to be here. Great. Well, guys and gal, out of the way, let's get into our listeners uh, some backstory on on Mr. Bulger. Ooh, I'd be happy to. (laughs) (laughs) We are discussing James Joseph Bulger Jr., who was born on September 3rd, 1929, in Everett, Massachusetts, to James Joseph Bulger Sr., and Jane Veronica, also known as Jean McCarthy. He was second of six children. James Sr. was a longshoreman and a union laborer. He unfortunately lost his arm in an industrial accident and was limited in his future employment. As a result, the family was reduced to poverty, sadly. In 1938, when Whitey was nine, the family moved into subsidized housing in South Boston. This is where Whitey grew up. Uh, Now, Phil, if you can, can you let us know a brief geography lesson and tell everyone what Southie is? I sure can. And I know Joe will will certainly want to jump in, too. (laughs) You know, Southie is an on... I would describe it as, well an enclave, an insular Irish enclave, you know, settled by the Irish. In fact, you know, the streets, some of which are named A, B, C, and so forth, um, each street basically boasts a particular county of Ireland. So you might have on A Street, County Cork, on, uh, you know, B Street, Tipperary, you know, C Street, and just down the line, Limerick, and and down the line. So <laughs> it really was insular. In fact, again, even to the counties, they were somewhat divided. But um, it was certainly a um, a place overflowing with activity, with families. And again, we have to remember, too, that uh, our history tells us that much like many groups who first came to America, the Irish were shut out of a lot of opportunities. So unemployment was really high. And, um, you know, many of the women of the family actually went to seek work and would actually walk across the bridge into Boston yeah. to become washwomen for families. But, yeah, basically the streets were so close, the homes were close, and Whitey's world was so close. And I look at a map, and again, if you look at a map of Southie and particularly of Whitey's neighborhood, yeah. you'll find the distances are not measured in miles. I mean, we're talking 500 feet. We're talking maybe you know, 800 feet or uh, closer to 1,000 feet between the housing projects. We're talking a situation where Teresa Stanley, who became one of Whitey's girlfriends, lived um, about a third of the mile away. Um, she also lived about that distance from Billy Bulger, who was Whitey's brother. Yep. 
and literally right behind Billy Bulger, who became Senate president, uh, was Stevie Flemmy's mother's house. And that actually, and again, literally in the backyard. So, so Billy Bulger could come and talk to his brother literally through the back door and uh, they could have meetings and that sort of thing. So, I mean, they could walk to all these points of interest, okay? Triple O's bar, maybe a mile and a half, a mile and a quarter up the street, still relatively close by. But again, just maybe a matter of five miles from the north end, which is where the Italian section was, and the what turned out to be the warring Italian mob. So everything was really, and still is really, on top of each other. Boston boasts a huge population, but again, in terms of the geography, pretty condensed. And you know, we have the ocean, we have Dorchester Bay, Old Harbor on one side, up the way we have an inner harbor, and we also have the Atlantic Ocean. So obviously, you know, commerce by the sea, commerce from the sea was a, was a big part of uh, of this uh, community. Yeah, definitely. And just to chime in on that, uh, Boston, Dorchester, and Southie is basically a suburb of Boston. Yeah. All Essex County, it's all part of the Boston, you know, circular uh, property, as you would say. But definitely, um, you know, and then you got to throw Quincy in there, which is not part of Boston, but it is the first city over the bridge um, that ultimately became Whitey Bulger's home. At one time, it was his own home. And then at one time, it was him and Catherine Gregg, his longtime girlfriend's home in Squanum, which is actually is a peninsula in Quincy, which you could actually throw a rock and hit Boston. Um, at the very end of it. So, uh, yeah, it's very close knit. And it's funny you talk about that, uh, Phil, because living in um, a small town now of Centerville, it's kind of like that. Yeah. Um, if we need to go somewhere, I I'll give you a great example. We had a package dropped off to us yesterday for a business up the square, and <laughs> you just walk it right up there and give it to them. It's not like you have to go far. Um, you, you, this town is not dry. You can walk this town, no problem. Just like Boston. I worked in Boston for years. You can walk from one end of Boston to the other. Southie the same way. Actually, Southie's probably just a little bit more congested because, like you said, you can just go right up to somebody's door in the back, the back door, and say hi or whatever. And it was open doors back then. Believe mm. it or not, you know how it was back in the day, right, Brittany? You could Absolutely. just leave your door unlocked, and that was it. And people came and go, and you know, mamas fed you, and neighbors fed you, and Real. you know, it, it was a tight knit community there. So. uh you know, that was the foundation for the Bulgers, no doubt about it. Absolutely amazing. Uh, I mean, what I've learned about Boston, it's almost like they, there were cities within this city yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Definitely. complete with their own leaders, their own yeah. rules. <laughs> I mean, their own economy even, too. Yeah, You're that's exactly right. Like. You know, you talked about um, Southie being separated by uh, names of streets for counties in Ireland and so forth. Yeah. In Dorchester, people don't ask you what neighborhood or where you grew up. It was your parish. What church did you go to? Oh, Saint, yeah. no, Saint Margaret's, Saint Anne's. That's how it was. You know, yeah. that's how they. That's how you knew everybody because everybody went to that church on Sundays. That was the bordering church that you went to. Yeah. So you know, it's funny. It's funny how it works like that. It just amazes me. Yeah, religion was big then, man. Absolutely. Irish, Irish, Irish Catholic, no doubt about it. Yeah. And uh, Billy Bulger was an altar boy too, and that's uh, correct. Whitey yeah. was probably like AJ Soprano stealing the wine, you know. <laughs> no two brothers could be polar opposite. Whitey's both of his younger brothers, John and William Billy, excelled yeah. in academics, but Whitey was drawn to the street life. He actually got the name Whitey from the police because of his hair color, 
Um, <laughs> Whitey hated this name because, you know, he preferred yep. to be called Jim, Jimmy, Alejandro, not Alejandro, uh, or, or Boots because of his predilection for uh, cowboy boots, which he wore to, uh, to hide his switchblade. And whether, you know, whether you want to call him Jim, Jimmy, Boots, Whitey, whatever, it didn't take him long to uh, get in trouble with the uh, be on a first name basis with the Popo. He was arrested for the first time in 1943 at the age of 14 after he was charged with uh, larceny. You know, a lot of these words I, I, I hear them like, and I think in Boston, like larceny. Uh, he was sent to a juvie, uh, and after his release, he joined the U.S. Air Force. Uh, he did receive an honorable discharge in 1952, but he did spend some time in military prison, both for assaults as well as uh, going AWOL. So he, he started prepping for his uh, his adult life there in the service. And uh, after that, he went back to Boston. And uh, Joe's going to take us through his early adult life as he started a four decades plus criminal career, culminating with him becoming the uh, the most wanted man in America. Now, honestly, the playa is now the most wanted man in America, but for entirely, <laughs> entirely different reasons. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah. Why, why do you initially started tailgating or what we like to call robbing delivery trucks uh, where they picked up their merchandise at the pier and from there they went on to, he graduated to armed robbery and so forth, which led to his arrest in 1956, um, sent to a federal penitentiary in Atlanta. So these were serious crimes back then to be shipped out of Massachusetts to serve your time. Uh, that's a big deal. This is where I kind of think that the fix is in too. Like he knows things because Here's a guy armed robbery. You would just go to wherever jail is closest to you back then. But they shipped him to Atlanta. And I thought that was kind of strange. Um, uh, he did volunteer to become a, an experiment with uh, 18 other inmates where they were given LSD and drugs over an 18 month period. Uh, Bulger claimed that he was recruited uh, in this trial um, to combat schizophrenia. And so, you know, to help find a cure. While in reality, the experiments were supposedly related to mind control. So, you know, the government was already trying to, um, you know, to jump in on the uh, pharmaceuticals back then. Um, so why do you describe his experiments as nightmarish? And he did suffer side effects the rest of his life. He was actually transferred to Alcatraz in 1959. And the reason he was transferred there was he kept trying to break out of Atlanta, the Atlanta penitentiary. They didn't have solitary confinement. Again, I find that weird that they didn't have solitary confinement there. So they took him to one of the worst prisons uh, known uh, at the time, Alcatraz. He went from uh, Atlanta all the way over to, uh, uh, you know, obviously California. And it was there where he developed a voracious appetite for reading, as well as a passion for weightlifting. He always kept himself in great shape. He also took correspondence courses in booking and business law. So he kind of educated himself behind the walls. And his reading fair centered on politics and military history. Interesting note here about the Alcatraz. Um, you know, he was sent there because he was trying to escape the Atlanta penitentiary, but he did strike up a relationship in Alcatraz with a guy by the name of Frank Morris. And one month after Whitey Bulger was released from Alcatraz, Frank Morris and all them were part of the escape from Alcatraz. Um, so that's a, you call it irony. I call it no coincidences there. Um, you know, they actually questioned Whitey at one point if he had anything to do with it, because obviously they had to follow every leads. He was very close to Frank Morris towards the end of his stay there. So who knows? Did Whitey have some part of facilitation role in that? Who knows? But I find that very, very interesting. Yeah. Well, but Whitey was eventually transferred to Leavenworth. What did that, that was like 
joke by Groucho Marx. I spent 10 years in Leavenworth and 11 years in... And then uh, in 1963, I know I botched that, to uh, Lewisburg Federal Pen, and then he was paroled in 1965 after serving a total of nine years in prison. So bad girl. We, you know, Joe said that he uh, took a correspondence course in bookkeeping while in prison. So when he got out, he became a bookkeeper, right? He, he was cooking the books. Yes. Oh, close play, but not quite. He became a bookmaker, Oh, <laughs> a bookmaker and a loan shark. He also became a member of the Killeens who dominated the South Boston crime scene for decades. The Killeens were led by the three Killeen brothers, Donnie, Kenny, and Eddie. And their base of operations was the Transit Cafe, which later became Triple O's. So, Joe or Phil, have either of you guys been to Triple O's? Uh, yes, I have been. <laughs> Tell us about it. I haven't been. I mean, I've been to Southie. And, well, uh, you know, uh, I, I mentioned it when we uh, talked about it. Uh, last episode that, you know, as a young kid turning 21, you always want to check out those places that were taboo and, you know, turning 21, you want to check it out. My time at Triple O's was brief. Um, I do recall a group of men in the corner, um, one of them being Whitey Bulger, but don't forget at this time, it was very early um, in his, uh, you know, it was before he was, you know, actually it was probably kind of in the middle. It was probably kind of in the middle. Um, So, you know, thought nothing of it. You know, every bar you go to, there's always that group of guys that are in the corner or at the bar or whatever. And, you know, you just always bumped into them and said hi. And, you know, it, it was more or less one of those things. Oh, how's your dad? Or he'd ask, you know, they'd ask you how you're, you know, how, how's, how's the ball game going? Or, you know, just real, real small conversations. But uh, one, one time I went there, it was kind of, it is a last call place. It's someplace you go, you want that last beer before uh, 1 a.m. or whatever what the closing time was back then. And, um, <laughs> you know, my, my, uh, Thing. My last memory of it was two girls uh, brawling, hitting each other over the head with beer bottles. And those guys got up, whoever it was. Uh, to this day, I think it was either Salemi or whatever, because they always hang out there. They look like these guys. I'm only strictly going by memory. I'm not saying it was them, but it was somebody close to them. It was just these two older guys. Of course, the two girls that were brawling were 21, so they were young. And they just really p- took them by the back of the hair and just threw them out the back door. And that was the end of that. So, and you know that, yeah. And that's that was the last time those, I was at Triple O's. <laughs> that's why. That's why they call those places buckets of blood, or at least yeah, they buckets used of blood, to. Yeah, you yeah. know, avenue of broke, avenue of broken dreams. You know, pretty much. <laughs> like, you know that part of the uh, random dog track you didn't go to and stuff like. Oh well, yeah. <laughs> they didn't spend much money on decor there, though. I saw the pictures when I read the book. It was kind of. Yeah, <laughs> kind of run down to say the least. Yeah, here's a picture of Triple O's when the DEA went walked in, but Triple O's was pretty oh, much wow. the same. Pretty much the same. And here's a quick shot of the inside of it, uh, Garrett, oh, okay. Quinn, Garrett Quinn. So it was kind of small. You see how it was small yeah, right here? Nice and looking off, at off, the left, the was, off to the left, there was some you know tables and all that, but it was just a place you went where they had last call, they were open, and you just went in there and had a couple beers and you left. but Obviously, my last time there, there was some excitement going on. So, you know. Yeah. You <laughs> never wanted to be called upstairs there either because that's no, where Whitey right? did. Or, out, or out back. Or if a, you got hailed upstairs, well, you know, you might not be coming back. <laughs> it's a right. one-way trip. Mm-hmm. Real quickly, I just want to say hi to the people in the chat. People are coming oh, on yeah. now. Beth's there. Maria, Joe Myers, they're all Playmate. ESO popped in for a Bruce. second. So he was there. Yeah, Bruce was there. So, we're, yeah, we're, you're going. we're going good. All right. 
Well, now eventually the Killeens and the rival gang, the Mullins, they kind of got bored with just uh, killing each other. So they decided to unite and form the Winter Hill Gang. And Whitey is now in his early 40s. He becomes the uh, the crime kingpin of South Boston. And his involvement encompasses bookmaking, not bookkeeping, uh, loan <laughs> sharking. And he should have stuck with the bookkeeping. Yeah. Um, if there was any criminal activity going on, you kind of knew that the odds were that that Whitey was getting a little piece of the action there. Yep. So we, we could go on about Whitey until tomorrow morning. We'd only be touching the, the tip <laughs> of the proverbial iceberg yeah. regarding this very complicated man. But for the rest of the episode, we're going to have each of our esteemed panel uh, talk about uh, various aspects of the man's life. And each of the panel will also start with a, a brief statement on what it was like growing up, because all of them did in Boston during the, uh, the Whitey-Bulger era. Uh, Bad girl, let's start with you. So what about Whitey's reputation as a womanizer? He had two long-term relationships, and then he also fathered a child with a third woman, correct? Yes. Yeah, so that came out. I didn't realize that until I saw the movie Black Mass. I had no idea that there was a third relationship or a child um, until I saw that movie. I was very shocked. Um, yep, that is it. Great book, great movie. And, you know, I grew up in Situate, which is 30 miles south of Boston. And, you know, we weren't as close by as our other two mass guys here. Uh, you were, sounds like you guys were right in the mix. Um, I was a little bit out further. And so, yes, we heard of him, but he wasn't, you know, no, none of us had ever seen him or met him or he never came in my family's businesses that were in situate harbor. Yeah. Why why you didn't travel far? Right. You didn't travel far, it, that's for sure. Sounds like they, they didn't have to travel far. Everything right. was so close. Yep. Yep. Right. Now now Whitey was definitely a strange cat though, because <laughs> as we said, his younger brother Bill with the polar opposite becomes a huge figure in Massachusetts politics. What a Jay what a day Joe is going to uh take us through the very unusual but actually fiercely loyal relationship between the Bulger brothers. Yeah, uh, Billy, uh, Jackie, and Whitey. Here's a rare photo I found of the three of them. Uh, Billy on the left, Whitey oh, in the wow, middle, okay. Jackie on the right. This is uh, a very rare photo. You cannot find photos of Whitey and Billy together. Obviously, that is something that was probably meant to be. Um, Billy Bulger, uh, sent, you know, he was the polar opposite, like we said, of Whitey. Uh, straight and narrow altar boy, Catholic school, well-educated, became the uh, Massachusetts Senate president, longest tenured Senate president, um, you know, before stepping down due to uh, his, um, he actually had to step down from that because he failed, he didn't want to testify on behalf of his brother. Mm -hmm. um, it, he still to this day claims he knew nothing of it, knew nothing of anything. So, you know, some people find that hard to believe, but if you lived where we lived, like Phil, it was a close-knit community, do nothing, say nothing, turn the blind eye. Uh, you didn't talk about it. It didn't happen. It was that Irish Catholic mentality. Um, you know, if you could just imagine sitting at dinner on Sunday and everyone's talking, and as soon as the truth came up, people just shut you down. They don't want to hear about the truth. So that's that's pretty much the kind of relationship they had. And, of course, he went on to become uh, president, uh, actually, uh, yeah, president of um, UMass. UMass. Yeah, I don't know why I struggle with that one. 
I usually say University of Massachusetts, but it's UMass. Zoo Mass, as we it's like. Zoo Mass, baby. It's yeah. Mass. It's where yeah. um, if you didn't get into that, it was always your safety school growing up. If you didn't get into the college you wanted, you fell back on UMass. So it yeah. isn't anymore, though, Joe. No, believe it or I, not, I, it's I've harder heard. to get into than a lot of other schools. Yeah, interestingly, I think, I think a lot of schools are like that now. But that, you know, I know when my daughter was growing up. That was there was always these safety schools, and definitely yeah. UMass was one of them. Yep. So, um, and then of course, from there, he had to step down because with the trial and everything going on, it was too much. So they asked him to step down. So he resigned from there. Uh, last we heard of, he left public life. Uh, you really don't know much about him. You can try Google him. You won't get nothing on him. I think it's, I think that's the strategy that he wants. He's living at city point down, uh, South Boston, which is a very uh, affluent neighborhood now on the water condos, all that stuff. And he does some, uh, um, what do you call it? Work for Suffolk Law. Uh, now and then he'll speak on behalf of Suffolk Law or he'll go in and teach a course or whatever. Right. But it's nothing. Uh, he's out of the limelight. It's nothing like it was. And, you know, we talked about this last time. Growing up in Boston, Massachusetts, politics, you, you were it, you you knew about the corruption. You were so in. I want to say ingested with the corruption that it didn't mean anything to you. The Kennedys controlled everything. Um, the Bulgers controlled things. It's just how it was. You didn't get you didn't get a job based on your qualifications. You got a job based on who you know. At Boston Edison, yeah. Compliments to Billy Bulger. You, you yeah, want to get a job? You want to get a job at the phone company? Yep. You got to know somebody. You don't have to have any technological skills, whatever. As long as you can speak English, you're white American Catholic Irish. It's who you knew, and you got in. Just Curious. like. Yeah. If you see the movie The Departed, if you've seen uh, all that stuff, it's it's they they they've hit it spot on. They hit it spot on, and that's basically how it is. Um, we grew up in it. We didn't realize it until you step back from it, and of course, yeah. years later, it's like I grew up in Quincy. Whitey Bulger. Um, let me see if I, I thought I had a picture of his house somewhere. Whitey grew up, lived in Quincy. He had a um, condo in Louisburg Square which was on the water in Wollaston beach where I used to hang out. Yeah. Um, and then he moved further Been into there. Quincy called Squanum with Catherine Gregg, yeah. uh, 16 Hillcrest road in Squanum and blended in with the neighborhood. Yeah. You, you didn't know there was a mass killer slash gangster well. <laughs> living around here. You didn't know it. And if you did know it, it was, Oh, that's cool. You know, we grew up, he, uh, Phil, you got to admit he was kind of idolized. Um, oh, he absolutely in, was, in you know. Oh, he was. And again, against the backdrop of uh, forced busing in the early to mid 70s, yeah. again, uh, everyone in, within Southie became very protective, okay? Yeah, Resistant right. to outsiders. And that actually helped fuel Whitey's rise. You bring up an interesting point. When Billy Bulger was the president of UMass, yeah. he landed the great presidential, one of the presidential debates in the year 2000 between George W. Bush. Yep. And Al Gore. And this now, I think you said your your honeymoon was around that time. I'm not sure, mm -hmm. Joe, when you were coming back. But imagine yep. this. Yep. Again, they juxt the media juxtaposed this. <laughs> a great debate at UMass, right there, the UMass Boston campus, a stone's throw from where they were exhuming Whitey's bodies. Yep. Which was right so, outside Louisville. But the president of UMass who brought the great presidential debate to the yep. school, okay, is here. And you can look out the window as they're exhuming the corpses of Whitey's. I mean, could you not have a greater tale of two cities right yeah. there? Yeah. Unbelievable. All in real time 
happening at the happening at the same time. It's, you know, there's what there's another thing I forgot to tell you. Um, we were having dinner a few years prior at the Venezia in Dorchester, and that's on the water. And as we were looking out the window, you know, we went for an early dinner around six, seven o'clock at night. They were pulling a body out of the water right in front of us. Wow. And it turned out to be somebody from Rhode Island, probably, that was affiliated. You know, it was never known who killed them or whatever, but odds are it was a Whitey Bulger sure. thing. And it was like, that was it. Okay, whatever. Go about your day. Have a nice time. Whatever. So yeah, that's how close you were. That's We were right there. We were in the thick of it. Again, you know, politics and crime on either side, and and boy, do those lines get blurred so much, you know. And here we have it, even within the the two major players on each side. It's 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 amazing. Wow. Well, speaking of that, Whitey had quite the liaison with the FBI, and in particular, one agent, John Connolly, who Whitey actually saved from a a bully during their childhood. And Phil, aka El Presidente, will now tell tell everyone about the unique partnership between Whitey and the FBI, and in particular, Mr. Connolly. You know, it, it was it was it wasn't you know it it wasn't exactly um, uh, uh, an FBI agent in former relationship. It was more like a man crush, I think that uh, that, yeah. that that agent oh, John Zip Conley had. And you know, to define John Conley, Zip Conley, um, I heard just on the radio this past Friday, Howie Carr said it best. Um, he, and out of the blue, they weren't even talking about this, but I said I have to remember this. He said John Zip Conley was a mob hitman who moonlighted as an FBI agent, okay? And because, in essence, that's what he was. But, yeah, in 1975, three years on the the force, as it were, uh, John Conley made the deal with the devil on Wollaston Beach in Quincy, and uh, sitting in his car, they they, they sort of... Conley made some overtures, which actually Whitey kind of first... Um, backed off from, but ultimately became a, a part of this. Now, this is not the first time Whitey has worked with the feds, okay? Nor is it the first time that Stephen the Rifleman Flemmy, his one of his right-hand men, worked with the feds. Conley's, oh, there he is. Yeah, there he is. Wow. Oh, there's, yeah. Yep. There's, yeah. yeah, there's Salemi. Yep. Cadillac mm-hmm. Frank Salemi at that. A fine Italian, I must say. Cadillac. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, who was brought down in part because of Whitey. But um, where was I going with this? Well, yeah, Whitey um, and Conley had a unique relationship going back to, you know, back to the projects. And and it really, it never, ever changed. In fact, he was always idolizing this guy. And as it turned out, it became a very corrupt relationship. Um, The mentor of John Conley was a guy named H. Paul Rico, which is kind of ironic in its own right, because Rico now is a a statute that has to do with racketeering. And it's basically... The law now that they used to was, was it named after him? No, it wasn't. It was it an acronym, but it was just. I know strange. it's an acronym, but yeah, but they always come up with these. And, but it was it was it was kind of one of those strange things too. Right. But yeah. anyway, Rico had uh, Paul Rico had Whitey under his care, as well as Stevie Flemmy's brother Vincent, yeah. whose nickname happened to be the Butcher. And of course, we have um, John the Hitman Martirano, who was Whitey's main trigger man. And we also have a guy named Joseph the Animal Barboza. So, a, actually, is it me or does it sound like a whole bunch of wrestling nicknames? Well, you know? <laughs> You've got Bret Hart, George. Royal, Royal Rumble, right? Yeah. Here, here's, here's a glimpse of what it looked like what the feds had to put up in the FBI station right here. There you go. There's your window. Huh? There it is. 
Wow. Alger, Fleming, Moderano, Howard Winter, all huge names in the oh, Irish. I can, I can even recognize these some of these from all yeah. the reading. Uh, if you wow. go down the list. Brian uh, Halloran's down there. Yeah, if you look on the ball, on the left side under Bulger, Kevin O'Neill, he's the original owner of Triple O's. Yep. Um, you know, there's all that stuff. I mean, there are just there are names. Halloran's on there. You mentioned that. Yep. Uh, James Flynn. These are all uh, guys they were targeting to get to Whitey. They literally, I think, I want to say they went from the bottom up. They started going after each one, trying to get them. And I think most of them, if not all of them. By the time they were questioned and Whitey found out about it, they ended up dead. Brian Halloran, um, whom Whitey yeah. called, uh, he called him Balloonhead. That was another wonderful <laughs> nickname. Was, did he like um, anybody when you think about it? Did he like anybody? No, he didn't. In fact, Joe, you had a rare photo of him smiling. In all the literature and all the pictures, I don't think I've ever seen oh, a yeah. picture of Whitey smiling. So that's, nope. that's a coup right there. Nope. But Brian Halloran worked for Whitey. He was a bad cocaine addict. And he was ultimately ratted out by agents John Connolly, Zip, yeah. and uh, his his uh, boss, John Morris. Yep. So the hit was put out on Halloran, and Whitey did it himself, which is weird. He he dressed up in disguise. I think he had like a, a beard yeah. and a wig and a hat. Yeah. He got into this car. I forget what he called the car, but it was a very souped-up car that they said could go in excess of 200 miles an hour. It was a oh, very yeah. fast car. Yeah. It also had the capability of, of projecting black smoke. So this is like out of a, a comic book or something, you know? No, emission, no emissions testing back then. No, right? no yeah. there wasn't. You remember those good old days? Yeah. But he took out Brian Halloran because Brian Halloran was going to rat on him, yep. uh, tie him to the murder of this guy named Roger Wheeler, yeah. who was I, the CEO of a high lie outfit in Florida and in Connecticut. Mm -hmm. They were skimming about a million dollars a year from Roger Wheeler and High Lie, and uh, they started to catch wind of it internally. And their guy in the inside, um, Callahan was his Callahan, name, right. yep. um, basically reported back to Whitey that this is the, ca the case. Yep. So they had a meeting, and they were trying to decide who to send to kill um, this guy, Roger Wheeler, out in Oklahoma. He was, he was, he was living in Tulsa. Yep. So ultimately, the hitman was sent out. Not Bret Hart, but no. John Martirano <laughs> was sent out to do the murder. Yep. But Brian Halloran, you know, they blew his cover. He was working with the feds. Bad cocaine addict. Whitey, first of all, never trusted anyone who drank or did drugs because Whitey yeah. did neither. He lived a clean Whitey, life. He Whitey was pretty life. straight edge, okay? He was the CM Punk of uh, gangsters. He, yeah, he kind of, yeah, he was. Another reference. Indeed, he was. So yeah. um, Whitey took it upon himself to to uh, to clip balloon head. But the problem is, <laughs> yeah, and that's sad. And, you know, and his wife was in the hospital delivering uh, their first baby, wow, yeah. too. So just awful, awful. And an innocent man, a construction worker, totally innocent man. I think Michael Donahue was his yes. name. Got caught in the crossfire too, and was was yeah. killed, and uh, just just a horrible scene. But indicative of what this this reign of terror was. Okay, Whitey not only was able to take out his rivals or his potential um, stoolies, but uh, was able to increase his his business as a result. I mean, certainly eliminating the Italians was was a major coup too. Well, yeah, but yeah, ultimately, well, yeah. Let's not forget this whole thing started with Connolly. And um, John Morris, no, Connolly and Bulger 
yeah. based on bringing down the Angelos, and that yep. was a big that was a big arrest for John. There's Conner. Jerry, yep. Yeah. And, Dude, yep. and you notice how Jerry's smiling. Yeah. True story. They purposely they were supposed to go out the front door into the car. Yeah. They purposely walked around the corner. This is what this is what started the perp walks. Yeah. Instead of going right into a car. John Connolly, all dressed up. Look at this, this guy works for the FBI. He photobombed him. I know it's a black and white photo, but this guy is all spiffed out. He's like Brooks Brothers. I yeah. mean, look at look at the ring. He had a watch on. I mean, this guy is they called him know, Cannoli. They GQ. called him Cannoli. This was his claim to fame. He wanted to bring down the big crime, the, the North End crime family. He associated himself with Whitey Bulger. He knew Whitey Bulger could get to him. Whitey Bulger promised I can get to him. And you know, Whitey had some conflicts over this too, because he's ratting out, you know, fellow fellow workers, so to speak, even though he's an arrival gang, you know, the whole thing was you never rat on anybody. So anyways, Jerry and Joel, he's smiling in Julo because he turns the corner and sees the press everywhere. And there's John Connolly pointing to the car that was again, parked across the street. So this guy had a perp walk. This is one of the first perp walks they call. And that's what Connolly wanted. This is what happened to John Connolly when he associated himself with, with um, Whitey Bulger. Yeah, and more pictures of John Connolly right here. Obviously, there he is, all spiffed out, walking into the courthouse. This is an FBI agent. He looks like he's a lawyer dressed up, walking yeah. into the federal courthouse in Boston. All sizzle and no steak there, all man. The, oh, yeah, the sure. And then, of course, there he is in 2002, getting a rain, uh, getting sentenced. Um, and of course, down below, Joel Ergerton plays John Con- uh, John Connolly in the movie Black Mass. And I think I told you guys this before. John Connolly, before he was an FBI agent, was a teacher in the Boston public school That's system. Right, yeah. One of them was Dorchester High School, 1967. There he is. He was a guidance counselor. Morton Downey Jr. Morton, yeah, <laughs> looks like Morton. Oh, Doesn't he? Yep. See how young he is? That's from Dorchester High, uh, 1967. He was teaching there um, as well as being a guidance counselor. My mother had, a, had him as a guidance counselor at Dorchester High. But this is before he was on the road to uh, being what he what he's going to become. And don't forget now, it was a letter from, I do believe, um, J. Edgar Hoover uh, wrote a letter to, no, the, the Senate president at the time. Wrote a letter, um, wasn't McCormick. I forget who it was. Big name. I, 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 I'll, I'll come to it. But he, the letter was written by the, uh, again, ironically, the Senate president, which yeah. would end up become, uh, wrote a letter to J. Edgar Hoover, a simple letter saying this man needs to be on the FBI. And that's how he got on the FBI. Wow. So he went from a school teacher guidance counselor, again, <laughs> not the highest paying jobs, not the most glamorous jobs, not the most uh, high profile jobs. No and, when in, and you're talking 1975 and all that stuff. Yeah. And then the Angelos. This is, this is what happened to John Connolly. He, was basically a project kid like Whitey Bulger was, mm-hmm. um, fast-tracked himself in the FBI and made it so, you know, made himself want to look good. That perp walk, again, you got to go back. It says a lot about him. This is yeah. a classic picture of a guy who wanted to be in the press when I think he even got um, someone, uh, one of his higher-ups, Morris or whatever, told him, what are you doing? You're supposed to put this guy right in the car no press, no nothing. But he purposely walked out the side door of the McCormick building um, and came around and, and had everybody take pictures. And he's pointing to the car, which is parked yep. across the street. The whole thing was a setup. Like so, Dusty uh, Rhodes said about Ric Flair, cock of the walk. And that's what he was. He want, you oh, know, yeah. 
He's the kind of guy that would go to the funeral, a funeral, and be jealous he wasn't the corpse. You know. You want you want to talk in wrestling terms? It was the greatest work the FBI ever put on. You know, again, all that bluster with him. You know, his job was to cultivate top level informants, and for years, people knew the FBI. You know, the the state police knew that these guys were informing Bulger, uh, blowing the cover of all these informants giving him the heads up on all these busts and basically yeah. giving him carte blanche to do anything. They yeah. literally said anything but murder, okay? The right. problem is they don't have the authority to do that, okay? And there was this one guy they sent in. He was a special agent. His name is Fitzpatrick, Bob Fitzpatrick. He came in, and let me tell you, he left before everything came down. He became yeah. a, a private investigator, but he sowed the seeds Oh, yeah. He got everything going. This guy was a no bullshit kind of guy. He was really a very brave guy and only one of just a few within. But it really showed how not only was that Boston office corrupted, yeah. but back in D.C., the same thing. They knew what was going on, so could never put my finger on it. And, this, and, and Fitzpatrick couldn't either. But for some reason, D.C. was protecting Whitey and by extension, Billy. And, and everyone else involved. So it's amazing. So many attempts were made to get him out of this, out, out of any informant status, much less this upper echelon, this top, you know. They, they also picked a group of guys, the department they worked in that Conley got assigned to when all this went down. Half these guys were on their way out. They have already had 30 years in. They already had 25 years in. They didn't care. They wanted to move on. It was only one or two that questioned Connolly's antics and all that stuff. And even then, it was always sidetracked with a big bust or something like that. As long as it looked good to the higher ups that, oh, they're working on corruption and all that. And I just watched an interview today with John Connolly. Uh, I want to say it was 1998. I think it was on GBH. Yeah. Um, and I've he seen talked some of those. Yeah, they're very and, good. And they talked about, did you authorize James Whitey Bulger to commit murder? And he's like, I never told him to commit murder. He said something to the effect that, he was allowed to do his bookmaking and racketeering, but anything else, like you said, was unauthorized. Well, so you know, yeah, it was, okay, it was okay to do the bookmaking and the racketeering, like he's been doing. We, but also, another thing we we keep forgetting to point out: Bulger was a small town criminal. He was not a big time criminal. He was that guy in the corner hanging out at Winter Hill. Um, all those places. Let me see. I think some of these hangouts here. This is where they hung out back in the day. This is the winter. Is that does that look glamorous to you? It's great cover. Well, Whitey was never ostentatious with his wealth, you know. Yep. He but, had yep. so much money. Oh, yeah. So yeah. much money. And obviously, as we've come to find out, so much money stashed. Okay. Right. Again, yeah. he was obviously he was into drugs. He got a tribute from every drug dealer in the city. They used to say, oh, he doesn't permit drugs and everything else. Yeah, he just gets a cut from every dealer, you know? He said um, that. He goes, he's in the shakedown business. I'm not in the drug business. And he shook down. He only shook down the uh, suppliers. He never shook down drug dealers. I know in the movie The Departed and all that stuff, it shows them, you know, you don't sell coke in my neighborhood. He didn't go after the small town guys because they would just find another small town guy to sell the drugs. Mm -hmm. He went after the suppliers and, and they said on uh, Kevin Weeks, I think was on the stand and said during the trial, we're not in the drug business. We're in the shakedown business. We shake down the drug suppliers. What they do after that, if it gets into Southie and all that, 
that's that's fine. Shakedown, you know, so- yep, it, it it equates to protection, and that's it was a yeah, protection exactly. racket. And You're uh, exactly right. Yep. And and well, and the big ship with sixty tons of marijuana was not. Uh, yeah, you know what was that, right? Yeah. Well, it's never legal. mind. Never it's mind legal the, now. Never mind that. Never mind the cannabis. What about the guns on the Valhalla? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You know. Well, that's when they arms to the IRA right. and then ratting them out at the end after he gets his money. I mean, yeah. this guy was, you know, I mean, pro wrestling parallels everywhere oh, yeah. in this, you know, <laughs> he was a worker for sure. He was with yeah. the title and then turn on his partner, you know, he, he, was, a main, he was a main eventer. Let's put it that way. He was a main yeah. eventer. Yep. So bad girl, uh, we were talking about Whitey in the harshest of terms, but yeah. he did have a soft spot for the the elderly and the you know the the, the four legged furry friends, didn't he? Yeah, he, he did. He absolutely did. He he liked little kids. He liked the elderly, and Very he had uh, poodles, yeah. if I remember correctly. Um, yep. some black poodles. Uh, there's many pictures of him with them. Um, so he, he was a big fan of our, our furry little four legged and, you know, uh, I believe one of you guys mentioned, um, before also about him befriending John Conley as a child. Right. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, he, the elderly, the children and, and, and the dogs were all treated well. Go yep. figure. I, yep. I heard he actually would keep a bag of dog biscuits in his car <laughs> just in case he saw a stray dog that looked yeah. hungry. Wow. See, like, yeah, he did, he did offer a lot of biscuits. He definitely did that. Yes, isn't he that, did. Isn't that like a, a mailman, a mailman mentality, keeping dog biscuits on you just in case right? he was bribing <laughs> dogs too. Back in the day, Maybe he was working the dogs. Yeah, absolutely. He worked everybody. He yep. definitely, definitely yep. did. So he, he did have uh, two long-term associates that we've already mentioned. Well, I don't think we mentioned uh, Kevin Weeks, but we, him and uh, Steve the Rifleman Flemmy. And yep. you know, after reading the Bulger book, I mean, my entire life, or my, most of my entire life, when I heard the term Rifleman, I thought Chuck Connors. <laughs> well, now, he wasn't now, six foot five like Chuck Connors, Benny. You know, or play, he was, he was, the ex-Boston uh, Celtic. The ex-Boston Dodgers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now it's Flemmy, but. Uh, Joe, tell our listeners how these guys all hooked up and uh, maybe give a, a Reader's Digest version of uh, some of their criminal activity. Didn't uh, didn't Bulger actually kill one of their girlfriends? Because she yeah, much- uh, we'll start from the beginning. Triple O's, we talked about this earlier on. Here's a great picture of them, the DEA walking in. Uh, they all used to hang out there. Kevin O'Neill owned it. So it's one of those places where they all hung out. Um, they struck up a conversation. I don't know how it exactly happened, but they – it was one of those things where they were always at the bar hanging out and they all got together and all this stuff. And Kevin, we has a picture of Kevin weeks when he was older. Um, here's a picture of them walking on castle. And this is actually surveillance footage. Yeah. Of Whitey walking. This is how Whitey dressed. That's exactly how we dress. Uh, ragged t-shirt glasses, all that didn't want to fit in. Wanted to look like an old guy at that time. I want he to say this, is, this is close to before he took off. This is yeah, early 90s. probably 94 or yeah, so. Yeah. Early nineties. And like I said, um, you know, it was before the Winter Hill stuff and all that. Um, yeah. They hung out, but they all got together. Kevin Weeks, of course, the Cadillac, Frank Salemi, which I showed you before right there. There's they a mug. Were, yep. Um, the one picture I forgot to get was James, uh, the, the Rifleman. Um, so as we right. all know, yeah. uh, the Rifleman got that nickname because he was a marksman in the Korean War. 
Yes. Go figure. You'd think it was based on his murders and so forth. But, uh, <laughs> you know, he's the one that admitted that he uh, killed 10 people uh, on the stand and got away with it. He got away with murder. But it's I the saying is, is that he, you know, he admitted to 10 on the stand, but it was close to 50 or more. Yeah. So, and, and they got together and they they formed the Winter Hill Gang and they were, you know, they did everything together. Um, if there was something that needed to be done, at least one of them went with each other. Uh, Kevin Weeks was the punching bag. He was the uh, the Boxer. bouncer at Triple O's. Yep, he was. He was. He was the muscle. He could take yep. a beating. He could give a beating. He could take on five guys, things like that. So you know, they he's got- a surrogate son of Whitey too. He's basically like a son. It was like a father son right. kind of right. warped one relationship though. Yep. And Flemmy um, actually had a relationship with his girlfriend's daughter, Deborah Davis. Yeah, this is a picture of Deborah. She was a pretty young girl. Obviously, um, they struck up a relationship and so forth. And the story goes, and it's been um, validated in courtroom testimony that Deborah got picked up one night. I don't know if it was prostitution or if it was a drug charge, but she had to spend the night in the Boston jail, a Boston police station. And Whitey and um, Flemmy went to pick her up, and they took her to an apartment where they said she was going to hang low for a while, hang out. You know, Whitey was there to show her the apartment as soon as they got towards the back room. I don't know if you guys understand how Dorchester, uh, South Boston, uh, triple deckers work, but they're long, they're straight and narrow, but long. Mm-hmm. And when you walk in, you have a living room, bathroom, bedroom, kitchen, and then a back bedroom. They're all the same. And trust me, if you went over somebody's house, you knew right where the sugar was, you right knew right where the bathroom was. <laughs> so it was that type of deal. And, um, Story goes that once Deborah made it back to the back room, um, Whitey Bulger plane killed her, strangled her, strangled her to death, and told Fleming to pick up his mess, and of course take um, take her to the White Bulger burial ground, which is underneath the Neponset River Bridge that connects Quincy in Dorchester and Southie, and was feet away from uh, where he, where Whitey Bulger lived in Quincy, Louisburg Square. So you know. That's that's how the story goes. He killed. That's what he did. He killed people based on the fact that she. They asked her if she talked, if she said anything. She said no. Whitey didn't believe her, and he killed her. And 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 Joe, uh, after the murder, he uh, he made a sandwich right after, and he took a nap. Yeah, that was his deal, right? Yeah, yeah, how? It was kind of maybe a ritual, but um, (laughs) and in the Hollywood version of Black Mass, if you watch the movie. He does that, and he tells Flemmy, "Hurry up, because we have dinner with Connolly at his house in an hour." <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't yeah. know how true that is, but that's the mentality that Hollywood is trying to convey yeah. to you to show you how um, psychotic. Yeah, the only word I could think you of. You know, one of the one of his one of one of Whitey's main guys. Just want to interject, John uh, Martirano, who was called the Hitman again, yeah. uh, well before Brett. Um, was interesting. He, you know, he wasn't one of these drugged out, drunken, depraved, murderous kind of guys. Uh, well, well, he was murderous yep. and uh, maybe a little depraved, but he right. was a um, a college graduate. Okay, he yep. uh, actually went, I think, to where did he go? He went to some swanky prep school. I don't know which one it is. Swanky, um, swanky prep school. He played football and he spoke in complex compound sentences so he was a he was a very educated guy and dressed very sharply so 
he kind of defied, you know, the notions of what a gangster right. is, whether on the Italian or the Irish side. So yeah. he was really Whitey's go-to, trusted go-to guy. And right. he's the one that uh, Whitey dispatched to Tulsa, Oklahoma, to take up Roger Wheeler, the CEO, right. the high yeah. guy. So, you know, for a hit that big, he went to the hitman. Yep, no doubt and, about yeah. it. Well, we've, we've made a lot of wrestling references, but uh, eventually, just like in wrestling, every criminal eventually has to do the job, yep. you know, pass the torch. And El Presidente will tell us about Whitey's indictment and his subsequent life on the run, yep. eventually settling down in Santa Monica, California. Yep. You know, all good things must come to an end, and so did the reign of Whitey, and uh, largely because his protectors retired, okay? Um, again, John Conley ended up going to uh, another opportunity uh, paved, paved by uh, Billy Bulger. It was a pri- wasn't it a private thing? Yeah, yeah. He was making a very good salary, and he was out of the FBI business. Yep. John Morris disappeared, was out of town too. Yep. And uh, now those last barriers, at least at the Boston office, were eliminated. So... Um, the people who were gunning for him, including um, the state police, uh, really picked up the pace. And ultimately, they started turning witnesses against Whitey and, and Stevie. And uh, in ni- late 94, the indictments came down and uh, they were given the heads up. Uh, Whitey fled immediately. First, he left with, I think, Teresa. He left with Teresa Stanley. They left town. Fleming was warned by Whitey to get out of Boston. It was hot and he didn't listen. He got pinched and ultimately um, he was used by the prosecution too. And so, so Whitey went on the road and um, visited many places with Teresa. They went to Graceland. They went to Florida. They went over to Ireland, uh, to London. They just, they, they had a wonderful tour internationally. Just had a great time. And again, this was pre nine 11. Okay. So they could go wherever they wanted, relatively uh, unobstructed. And um, during the course of that, Teresa, his girlfriend, really got sick of Whitey and his long silences. And anytime she'd ask him any questions about why they're why they're vacationing so much, he would just tear into her. So she learned to not to bother him. But ultimately, she started to miss her family. So Whitey decided uh, to bring her back, and he did. And in the process, he brought her back, and then he uh, went for his younger gal pal, uh, Miss Catherine Gregg, and then they hit the road, too. While they were on the road, they they kept a, a, a certainly a, a good ear on what was happening in Boston. Uh, they had a lot of money stashed in a lot of places. Kevin Weeks was very instrumental in that in, in, in terms of also getting him some new IDs. In fact, Whitey came back to Boston to... Uh, to get some new IDs as well. So he'd been back a few times while on the lamb, interestingly. So, and again, still uh, within the confines of Southie, he was still pretty protected and certainly still very feared. Okay. There, I mean, there's all just the level of fear people had for this guy was off the charts. People didn't want to mention his name, even in casual conversation, but uh, he came back. Then he hit the road again. Uh, He made a phone call though, to John Morris, who at this time was, I think in Virginia or somewhere, working at an F at, at, um, I don't know if he's doing private investigation or still with the, with the Bureau, but he called under the alias of Mr. White. He insisted on talking to John Morris, whom he have over the years has bribed, of course, with cash, with wine and all that. And he, and he basically said, if I'm going away, you're going away. And he hung up the phone that night. John Morris had a heart attack. He survived, 
later to testify, thankfully. Wow. But again, the power of Whitey on the phone, <laughs> threatening him. If I go down, you go down. That yep. very night, Morris had a heart attack, you know. On the topic of interesting deaths, a few years later, um, and I'm going to check my notes. I'm not sure the year, but it's interesting that um, the one mobster that everyone was gunning for and, and ultimately got, that would be Jerry Angulo, died. And I think it was on, um, what day? September 4th of 2009, Jerry Angulo, who had been in prison, died, okay? 80 yeah. years old, seemingly natural causes. But what's interesting is that was Whitey's birthday he died on, too. The yeah. guy who sold him down the river. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. But um, So, yeah, Whitey went on the road for a long time. And um, as the dominoes fell, as that protective fence started to fall, and as people started to testify, it became very clear that Whitey was a marked man. Um, again, they were holding trials in absentia because he wasn't back to, to yeah. testify. In fact, even when he was arrested in Santa Monica in uh, June of 2011, he never took the stand, never took the stand at all, didn't say a word. He wrote everything. Um, he wrote letters in prison, yep. basically to kind of burnish his, his his image, his PR image. But ultimately, as we know, um, was convicted and um, as a result uh, was imprisoned and transferred from one place to another. And what was it? Within a half hour of being released into general population at this new establishment, yep. he was yep. done in rather violently, and some would argue rather fittingly, yep. and a very. Uh, torturous and barbaric uh method you know very awful they you know stomped, they stomped on his head yeah but it was um it Talk was about eye, they did real eye gouging in this case you know i mean yeah. beyond, it was just they they tortured him like he tortured many of his victims and you know well, the, the thing was is it was two former uh mafia hitmen that killed him in prison ironically yeah yeah uh, uh, paul j g Calagero. Yeah. Was a mafia hitman and Fodios yeah. Freddy Gias. Yeah. They were former hitmen for some. I, I want to say, well, there were ties to Rhode Island, but I don't know about that. But these guys, ironically, he was done in. Like we said, uh, just re backtracking a little bit. Whitey Bulger was arrested right here. I got a photo of that. In there Santa he is. Monica, uh, Catherine Gregg on the left, him on the right. That's in the parking garage in Santa Monica. Um, he was airlifted from there, sent to Boston. And as I mentioned before, um, he was housed in Plymouth, Massachusetts, the House of Correction. And every day they had to transfer him to Boston. And this is just a, a, like a symbol of what it looked like every day, every morning that Whitey would go to court. Orange jumpsuit. Um, these guys look like paratroopers, for God's sakes. Um, and there was helicopters overhead. Uh, they shut down highways and all that. I told you guys where I worked every morning. It was a nightmare because they would pick, um, you know, the rush hour time to do this. So it was kind of nuts. Um, and there's his mugshot, of course, taken down in 2011 after 17 years on the run. But, um, yeah, he was done in by uh, two former mafia hitmen. And, you know, there's a lot of stories going around that he was switched to general population after he was transferred. Um, he was in solitary confinement the whole entire time of his trial. He was in solitary confinement to the prison he went to. And all of a sudden, he goes to this last prison. Um, and what do you know? He gets put in general population. And within days, he's dead. And rumor has it that he was in an area that should have been secured. There was a door open. The two guys walked in, did him in. 
and all that stuff. So, um, yeah, like Phil said, they were gunning for Whitey at the end. Um, and I think that his um, people that idolized him that, you know, because when you idolize a figure like that, you don't get the details on what what he how powerful he was and what he did. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when he got when Salemi took the stand, Weeks took the stand, you got the you get the realness of it. The Deborah Davis accounts, the, you know, the guy that uh, the highlight guy, all that stuff. You, you saw how ruthless he was. And it was just, you know, it was just it was sad to see that. A guy like that finally apprehended, you know, and I've said this before and I said it last week. I think the feds knew all along 16 years. They knew where he was. Probably, I know yeah. he was on America's most wanted. He was seen in London or whatever. And yeah. all these other places, they knew where he was. If you're going to hide out from the feds, you're going to hide in Santa Monica. So if I need to disappear from the world, I can just go to Santa Monica, California. And that's it. I mean, really? I mean, he lived on the boardwalk. I'm sure the man kept in good physical condition. And speaking of that, when he was arrested, he claimed uh, during the trial that he was sick, that um, he was, you know, there was a, uh, a rumor going around that he eventually wanted to get caught because he knew he had to go back to Boston to, you know, to get good, the, the finest treatment around. And, you know, that all backfired. I mean, there's all these crazy stories on why he got caught, how he got caught, you know, but the fact remains, we'll never know the story of Whitey Bulger because he's dead now. We can mm-hmm. only go by witness testimony and people that knew him. But I'm sure if Whitey was around today, the way social media is, this man would be the most sought after uh, oh, God, guest yeah. on any Absolutely. podcasts. I mean, oh, yeah. he probably would have came on True Crime tonight and talked to us. Sure he would. Absolutely. He was protected, though. Even I mean, it, like I said, it reaches oh, yeah. the D.C. Oh, yeah. Bureau. It does. In fact, a, a very compelling book by this guy, Bob Fitzgerald, called Betrayal. He was inside. He was the main FBI guy. He was the guy sent there from the FBI to investigate. And all that he saw just illustrates just the corruption. And I don't want to make too many statements about the FBI today, but I don't think a whole lot has changed in many ways, sadly. But again, a few rotten apples compared to the bunch, you know, they're all. But, you know, certainly there are still a couple bad ones. Too, you, know, you, know? You, can, you know, the the depths that Johnny Depp went through to portray him. Oh, I mean, yeah. Here's a picture of Johnny Depp and Whitey Bulger. I mean, look at that. Yeah. About, you know. Wow. Character, you talk about character acting. That's why I refer people to the movie Black Mass. If you want to see what he looked Man, like in action, watch this movie. It's not Jack Nicholson in The Departed. You know, you know. That, that was all good Hollywood stuff. But Black Mass really hit a home run with um, all that. Here's the poster. I've got to see um, it. You know, have you ever seen it, Phil? I have not. I, I know oh I've God. seen The Departed, which is based on that, but I've never yeah. seen this is that totally movie. This is based on the book. Um, yeah. You said you had family members that worked at the Globe, right? Yeah. Dick Lear and Gerard O'Neill. O'Neill figure last name. Where's that come from, right? Yeah. Um, they were this when this book came out. This opened a lot of eyes for a lot of people as well. Yeah, and I forget what year it came out, but I was shocking that it took so long to make a movie on it. Yeah, and in the opening pages it says Wollaston Beach, Quincy, Mass, and and it's it's Whitey and uh, uh, James Connolly in a car on Wollaston Beach talking about what what they planned this all out. They they had a going steady, Joe. They talked yeah. about going steady, going steady, and that's what <laughs> you know. Went. They went steady, so you know it's a very intriguing, very powerful story. Yeah, and before we get into Conley, and I, t- I can tell you if you're interested, and in, uh, ultimately Zip Conley um, 
was, first of all, he was charged, got 10 years for racketeering and obstruction of justice. That was 2002. But actually for murder, for which he was guilty, okay, by virtue of revealing the cover of these informants about basically allowing that. So he got uh, 40 years uh, in prison, too. And at age 68, that's that's a life sentence. So he certainly uh, he certainly got it right there, too. But, you know, again, another murder that Whitey has been whispered about that, that happened, um, yeah. the, the Lady of the Dunes I referenced in 1974 in the Cape, yeah. this, this, this corpse that was semi-dismembered, um, a lot of the people in Provincetown think that Whitey was the culprit. There was evidence, yeah. and we mentioned how the, how the Provincetown police chief was fired by the select board because he would not stop pursuing this matter. And, the, and again... Yeah. From, from whom these orders came ultimately is a mystery, but there was a lot of pressure on the select board to fire the chief, who really tried to tag Whitey with this too. Yeah. I mentioned too, amongst many of Whitey's many ventures, <laughs> more than whispered about that he also was a, a male hustler of sorts who would, um, and again, I use that phrase, gay for pay, and I'm not talking about Marcus Bagwell. Well, like Richard Gere, although, American Jimmy, you know, what? But uh, there, well, you know, and he he would, you know, you know how far he took those dates, I don't know, but he obviously would be rolling them for their money, you know. So he was into everything, really. Well, he did, a long time. he did a long time behind bars too, so you never know. Yeah, you know? yeah. No, but as for, as for James Connolly, uh, FYI, he is out on a medical. Um, he wanted to get out during COVID. They denied it, but then they somehow found a judge somewhere that led him out. He's home. Uh, convalescing because he's in uh, he's 83 and he's ailing he's not well he's sick yeah so i mean i don't know how much longer he has to live and it's funny because he must be under some type of protection or some type of court order because he's not doing the interviews that you'd think you do or appear on social media and all that stuff for a guy who pretty much would know for a fact whitey bulger's story right yeah. Um, they have the clamps you know I mean? on him, man. They yeah, have they, the, clamps they the clamps on him. That's probably yeah. one of his um, provisions for getting out, I'm sure. Um, Definitely. Not, not to talk like that, but I'm sure he's got a book that'll come out afterwards. I'm sure he's gonna. he's got anyway. notes. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a publisher at his house every day working on it. So when he does pass, um, this book will come out. Uh, incognito through somebody else. Yeah. Well, Brittany, you've got to get on the Catherine Gregg count, yeah. right? You want oh. to do her story, don't you? I've always wanted to yeah. do it. I did. When she was yep. first arrested, she was only one town away from me in prison. Yeah. She well, was in Central Falls, Rhode Island. And, I would take a woman's um, touch, and I think you have that. That would be, how cool that would, would that be? Great. be? Yes. Yeah. yeah I, would, I would love to write her book, and I'll tell you, I'm very surprised that she hasn't done any interviews. Yeah, I think they get the clamps on her. They probably yeah. every they're all they quiet. Yeah, they have yeah. to because, like for example, look at the the most recent uh, the girl that got out, Gypsy Rose Blanchard. She was wow. on the internet by the time she got to her husband's car. She was already streaming on Hulu before she got out of prison. Yeah, exactly. That, I, mean, I mean, she was great. I don't know how what kind of prison she was in. But they let her do interviews. I'm like, is she in prison or is she just doing interviews all day? Right. Like, you, and, know, and she's, so. you should see something like 10 million followers. Oh, yeah. Wow. Was on last week, she was on 2020. She was on Good Morning America. She hasn't oh, yeah. even been out a month. Yeah. So, like, who is, you know, was that part of the deal with 
Catherine Gregg that she can never speak? Yeah, if she's not talking, there's definitely something there that they can't, um, you know. Like I said, when these people, unfortunately, when they pass on, I'm sure books will come out in their names or incognito and stuff like that. Something like that will happen. These are major stories that need to be told. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, of course, Zip Connolly will tell you everything you need to know. He was part of it. He may not have witnessed all of it, but he knew. He knew what was going on. Um, You know, just like uh, Kevin Weeks and Salemi, I mean, you don't hear much from them. Yeah, you know, so, yeah. So I mean, so Aww. they they got the kibosh. Just something with them for that. So there's a gag order there. Yeah. <laughs> I tell you what, all, all I can do is channel my inner Frank Barone and say, "Holy crap!" Uh, <laughs> as, as, I, as I mentioned in the outset, I, I knew very little about Whitey Bulger, but yep. after listening to you guys, especially you know, watching the movie Black Mass, which is phenomenal, reading the book that Brittany was so nice to send me. I feel like I have a PhD now in Bulgernomics, but like we said, there's, I think there's so much more. That's there's a lot, a lot of juice left. in that. I, I, I got, I got some juice for you here. I forgot to mention this, but here's how deep, um, Whitey Bulger went. Dana White was originally from South Boston, president of UFC. This is an interview he had back in 2014. I actually tried to get permission to show the interview. I heard and heard back from CNN yet. Um, but he basically owned a gym in South Boston. Uh, the phone, two guys came in, said, um, oh, you're doing business here. You owe us 2,500 bucks. He's like, what are you talking about? He goes, well, you're doing business in Southie. Um, I think you know who runs Southie. You got to pay $2,500. And uh, Dana was like, okay. So the two guys left. Two days later, the phone rings. I think it was on a Wednesday. The guy said on the phone, he goes, you have till one o'clock on Friday to give us the $2,500. If you do not have the $2,500, well, you know what's going to happen. Dana White, I, I can't I can't show the video. I'm bummed that I can. Physically said to this interview guy, said, I hung up the phone. I booked two tickets to Delta Airlines, and I went to Vegas, and I never looked back. So that's how, close, that's how close that was. Wow. And then on the more local front, Chris Nyland, Knuckles Nyland. Um, former Canadian, former Boston Bruin, former NHLer, he went out with his daughter-in-law, and he discussed on this interview uh, with Chris Goomba. It's short for Goomba Lopoulos. He's a Greek guy that's on uh, CNN. Uh, this is from ten. This is from a couple of years ago. Um, the one from uh, Dana White was from 2014, but this was from a couple of years ago. He talks about going on the date with this daughter-in-law of uh, Whitey Bulger, and he's at the house, and Whitey Bulger's there, and he goes, "Can I talk to you?" They go in a room, and Whitey Bulger has a pistol aiming at Chris Nyland, and he tells him, you know, you're going out with her. You treat her well. You don't hit her. You don't do this. Um, you treat her like a lady. If not, you know what's going to happen. And Chris looked at him and says, you know, Whitey, you don't have to point the gun at me. I know. He goes, well, that's my way of doing business. And wow. so he walks out the door. He's getting in the car. And, of course, um, the daughter-in-law is in the car, and he's about to open the door, and Whitey motions to him to come back. He goes, hey, Chris, come back here. And he's like, Oh shit, what now? I'm gonna get clipped. What? So he goes back up to him and uh, Whitey hands him a fistful of bills, and it turns out to be five hundred dollars and says, Take her out to a nice restaurant, treat her nice, be well to her, have a good time tonight. Nice. And uh that was Chris Nyland. That's on that's um a local kid, um mm-hmm. NHL hockey player, kind of famous. Um, yeah. but you know, these this is how Whitey was. But didn't and- he marry, didn't Chris Nyland marry Teresa Stanley's daughter? I'm not sure about that. I, I, think they got married. I do think I do think they did get married. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think so, they did. I mean, so, you know, that's that's the effect Whitey Bulger had. He didn't wow. care who you are. Here's Dana White. Um, obviously, now he's the president of UFC, started a multi-billion dollar organization. But his first time running a gym, and he's trying to get shaken down by Whitey Bulger. And he knew wow. who Whitey Bulger was. Yeah. So he was like, screw this. I'm out of here. That was his ticket. So if you think about it, yeah, if, if he stayed in Southie, would he have started and, UFC? <laughs> you know, would UFC start? You get that chain of events that could go on. You, you gotta, you gotta look at it like that. I think he even says at the interview, he goes, "If if I don't leave Southie, you know, there might not be a UFC. There might even might not even be a me here. <laughs> you know." Yeah. So I mean, that's the depth of this man's life. I mean, and like you said, Benny, we're just touching the surface. There are oh, stories, yeah. there are stories like this, countless of stories. Yeah, well, you know, what forty years he controlled uh, the mafia, not the yeah, Irish mafia. Four, four plus decades, yes. Going so, back to the sixties, and I yeah, mean, yep. you gotta imagine. I mean, this is just you know, but like going back to Connolly and the rest of them, Catherine, Greg, they have stories to tell. Yeah. Obviously, they have um, an order not to say anything or something like that because by now they'd be talking about it. You would think. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Well, guys, I, I can't thank you enough. Um, this has been great. I learned so much just from listening to you guys. Not only learned, I mean, it was just entertaining. Yeah. To these stories. So I want to get some, just have everybody go around the table and just get some closing remarks. Remarks. I wanted to start with Brittany. And, I, you know, Brittany, uh, during our first episode, was the first or second? Second episode uh, about Charles Manson said that she, uh, she wrote Charles Manson in prison. And then she actually tried to call him long distance from... Uh, yep. From Boston to uh, where was he? Somewhere in California, right? The Boston, I think. Yeah. Um, so, did you uh, did you write or call Whitey? No, <laughs> I, I was older then. Right. I, I was in um, I don't know, probably you, seventh grade when I called Charles. You Manson. were past the, the crush phase by that point, right? Well, yeah, yeah, and I, and I got quite grounded for that for making those calls. <laughs> That's a great story, though. <laughs> I actually got kicked out of my house. And once my parents got divorced and my mother found out that I used her address as the return address on the letter. So she called my father up freaking out saying, Charles Manson's going to get out of jail and come here and kill me. Get this girl out of here. So, yeah, yeah, I learned definitely by the time Whitey Bulger came along. It brings back some like reminiscing some ancient history that we used to get phone bills you know, for yep. our house phone. And yeah. there, were, there was such a thing called toll calls. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so I got your, uh, your collect calls to the prison were on the phone bill. Hell that reverse the charges. <laughs> yep. 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 So my father called new England telephone and said, nobody from this house called here. And they gave him the, you know, the time, which was right on the bill anyways, like you said, and yep. they, they told him, what it was so of course he knew which child did that because he had one really good honor student and one not so much so it was very easy for him to figure out who did it and i got grounded both times i did it my goodness yeah it was worth it though yeah hey look we're talking about it now right Right there you go go. nice phil how about you closing remarks on whitey bulger Again, you know, beyond just the the criminal elements, the uh, the 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 salacious and and, and uh, the violence, it's such a commentary on um, 
the relationship between politics and the in the world of crime and uh, how intersected they are and how influential e- influential each is on the other and uh, and again just a great study of a, of a of of a city the birthplace of of you know of the revolution right up the street in Concord, man, it all, you know, it all basically started here and uh, just a fascinating story on so many levels. And it's one of those kind of stories that I think we can learn from. I hope we can. And um, just a, uh, just a compelling story. And again, a tale of a family and two brothers, certainly. And um, just again, um, be careful who you trust. As, as Stone Cold would say, don't trust anybody. And in this situation, DTA, for sure. you know, DTA, baby. DTA. DTA. Absolutely. Yep. Nice. Nice. Joe, how about you? Yeah, um, very, very um, captivating individual, no doubt about it. Growing up in that town and seeing what I saw, you just didn't know how what you were looking at or what you were surrounded by not saying I knew Whitey Bulger, but I knew of him and I had seen him. So even just that kind of like freaks me out today, knowing that he was the individual that he turned out to be and so forth. Um, Brittany, you'd mentioned, uh, you know, sending letters and stuff to prison and all that. Um, When he was in Plymouth house of correction, uh, awaiting trial and going to trial, they actually had to hire a full-time mail uh, postal worker at the jail because, believe it or not, Whitey did get tons of fan mail, hate oh. mail, um, you name it. I mean, they had to hire a mailman because they didn't want to sacrifice a prison guard because you have to go through the prisoner's mails, uh, yeah. the mail, to make sure nothing's in there and all that. He would receive death threats. He would receive... Uh, correspondence of marriage he would receive you know you killed my father-in-law yeah all this stuff so you you know you that's how popular and captivating whitey bulger was i'm sure he got Um, cakes too because everybody everybody, people in prison get bun cakes don't they yeah yeah. (laughs) i don't know know if we got any food but okay um but still nonetheless the man remains um i'm not gonna i want to say popular but there's a story out there. People want to know more. The yeah. story's definitely not over. Uh, Zip's not passed on yet. Catherine Gregg hasn't passed on yet. We will get this story sooner or later. Those are the only two I can think of that are that close to Whitey Bulger that can tell us exactly who the man was, um, especially mm-hmm. with Catherine Gregg getting arrested with Whitey in Santa Monica. But a great, compelling individual. Um, the story's been told a million times. Whitey Bulger isn't the only gangster that grew up with that lifestyle. This happens almost in every mafia town, um, tight knit, close community. Two brothers go to school together. One brother stays good. One brother goes bad. That story has been told a million times. This one was just a more high profile thing. Yeah. Um, you had Billy Bulger, Senate president, UMass president. Those are pretty esteemed, um, you know, uh, professions in Massachusetts. So, and to know that he was related, I mean, growing up, I, I laughed. You mean Billy Bulger, the Senate president is Whitey Bulger's brother. Oh, that's funny. You laughed it off, but you yeah. did not, didn't realize the amount of corruption that went on because you lived it. You were there. So, uh, great stuff, guys. I'm so Quick, glad, uh, yeah. that you allowed us, Brittany. It's awesome that you guys allowed us to be a part of this. Tonight. Oh yeah. No, thank I know, you I know awesome. 
I know uh, I said this, I know I said this before, but when you had mentioned Whitey Bulger, I think me and Phil jumped out of our seats. We're like, whoa, okay, yeah, yeah that's, that's our boy from the backyard. So yeah, yeah. And that, besides so. besides Black Mass, which is a great book, I read yeah. again Betrayal, the book by yeah. the FBI guy Robert Fitzpatrick, awesome. Yeah. Three Howie Carr books. Howie knows him better than anybody, I think. Yeah. The Brothers Bulger, awesome. Yeah. Rat Isn't Man. That, didn't that start it out, Brothers Bulger? The Brothers that, Bulger. That's that one of his books. One? Was that the first yep, one? It might yeah. have been. There's yeah. Rat Man and then The Hitman about Matarano. Um, one of the uh, – who was that Italian director? Anyway, he bought the rights to the Matarano story. I can't think of who it was. Uh, Scorsese maybe or someone. It's got to be – it's yeah, and the uh, so, book was great. Awesome. And by the way, I went to school with uh, Mr. Matarano's son. We were very good friends. Frank, no who died under very suspicious circumstances in Situate. Oh, oh they all die under very suspicious Damn. circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Must be the water in Situate. <laughs> well, I don't know. Hey, before, but, hey, boy, before we leave. Curious. We we're talking about going to school with people. Joe, you went to school with someone famous, didn't you? Yeah, I went to high school with Missy Beefcake. <laughs> no, you did not. Come on. That's going to really? be my new moniker. Wow. You see where it says Maple Street Studios underneath that? I'm going to put, you I went did? to school with Missy Beefcake on there. Yeah. Every show, we got to hear it. I was like, uh, I don't she was, think Brittany didn't know that. Did you she know was that? She a couple years younger than you. We actually went to the same middle school and high school. Oh, my God. Awesome. I love middle her. School, middle school was only two years apart. She so tells it like it is, But I was already in high school, but. Um, yep. Yeah, was Missy there. and I are friends. Um, okay. Yeah, Melissa yeah. Gloria Caruso is her her real maiden name. That is correct. Um, yep. That is yep. correct. Very cool. Um, wow. Yeah, yeah, she's great. Uh, and I did listen to the show that she yeah. did. That was very her interesting. Her reaction to that was priceless. I play it on my, uh, my What a Day now. <laughs> yeah, the, that, that was great. But I got to tell you, I think she has so much more to say. Oh, oh yeah. Of course she does. I, I think she does. No oh, I, I liken her to Jose Canseco because a lot of the people in the chat room when she was on were, you know, kind of dissing her. But, yeah. you know, when, when Jose came out with his book and said all these people are on steroids, everybody thought he was just a kook. And yep. it turns out everything he said was spot on. Yep. I think it's going to be the same thing with Missy. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Missy, yeah, Missy VP, um, she was. Yeah, it was a great interview. There's no doubt about it with the Greg it Valentine was. situation and all that. More to come on that one as well, I think. Yep. I think I have the reaction right Joe here. Joe Lowry says he went to high school with you at North Quincy High. He graduated come in 87. That's what he said. Come on! Who is this? Where is he? He's um he's one of our hosts on one of our other shows. Did you do you remember that I name? He says you were about a year younger than him, I think. If that's what he says. I dated Keith Smith. Does he remember Smitty? I don't know. He'll have to respond. Yeah, I remember Smitty. He was a hockey player. So <laughs> you gotta I look. always have to turn down my volume when that comes out. I should gotta put a right. disclaimer on that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's funny, though. I, I, do, I do that as fun. It's just fun the way she, she reacts. That's cute. I love it. She's yeah. very monotone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a Quincy thing, though. Not very emotive, huh? <laughs> no, yep. Don't forget, yeah, Quincy, gotta, Quincy, gotta... Quincy is spelled Q-U-I-N-C-Y, but the founder is Josiah Quincy purposely spells it or pronounces it Quincy with a Z. Q-U-I-N-Z-E-E. If you Google it, you'll see it. It's pronounced Quincy. So when somebody says Quincy, you know they're not from Quincy. 
They're exactly. posers. Yeah, they're and right. Joe, you know how New Englanders say Wednesday? Some of them we yeah. they say Wednesday. Wednesday. Yeah. Wednesday. Did you Wednesday. eat yet? No, Jew. Did you Tuesday. eat? Oh, no, Jew? <laughs> I'm no, going Jew. down cellar. Monty's in the chat room. Did did Missy go to school with Joe? <laughs> we never knew that. <laughs> now I would like to say one thing. Um, sure. As far as Whitey, no. Joe Lowry says he went to high school with. Sorry about that. Sorry about that. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> it was worth Come it on. to hear that again. Um, Whitey killed two of Stephen Fleming's girlfriends, both named Debbie. Deborah Hussey and David. Deborah right? Hussey was the one that was the daughter of a girl, a woman that he was seeing, Marion. Um, and she's the one that was arrested that they picked up at the jail. Yeah. Uh, Deborah Davis was uh, Stevie Fleming's girlfriend that got back from Mexico, where, yeah. and Phil, you know this, uh, where she mm -hmm. met someone and fell in love. So yep. she was going to dump Stevie, and instead she was killed. Um, so yeah. she was not the one that got arrested for prostitution. It was that other yeah. one. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you, if you look at uh, the pictures of both of them, yeah, absolutely. Couldn't be more opposite. These two Debras. Yeah, couldn't be more it. opposite. So I many it. stories. With, I mean, there's stories within the stories. We could go on for days, but oh no, can't. Got to wrap this one up. Yeah, uh, I, I, now, I guess ninety minutes will do that. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> this was great. So for the Boston bad girl Brittany Brown, the president Phil DeCesare. And Joe, what a day, Lowry. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks to everybody in the chat room, too. And uh, keep checking the Monty and the Farrow YouTube channel for the next episode of True Crime with the bad girl and the player. See you next crime. See you next crime. <laughs> that always gets me. <laughs> Love it. I like that. See you next crime. See you next crime. See you next crime. <laughs>